chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're in the study of the book of John. And if you're uh, visiting or just back with us again, uh, we haven't gotten too far in this study, so you haven't missed too much. But John chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 today, and we're going to talk about cleaning house. Some of your favorite subject, right? Well, it's that time of the year, isn't it? It's that time of the year. Many of you are thinking about doing some spring cleaning around your house, no doubt. And maybe uh, some of you have thought, hey, some things need to be done around the church here, maybe. I hope some of you are thinking that way. Uh, We'll kind of let the snow melt before we plan a work day, but uh, we need to do that. And it won't be long until it'll be work week at Camp Shatek, right? Uh, Another month, and we'll be looking at work week. And we'll be working to help prepare for the summer. Of course, cleaning up is not a a once-a-year project, is it? Uh, Maybe it helps us get caught up after a long winter, or because the weather is nicer, and we can tackle some of the neglected projects. Probably most of us do not enjoy cleaning our houses or apartments, but if we don't do it regularly, pretty soon you'll be living in a pigsty. Back in my days of working as an ambulance driver, I did that for a few uh, years or a couple of, about a year and a half, actually, while I was finishing up school. And even as more recently as a law enforcement chaplain, I have visited homes of people. Now, this is no one's home that I know of that lives, that's here this morning, okay? But I have lived or I have visited homes of people who had all kinds of boxes and piles of stuff stacked everywhere. Places, the place would be a disaster. Uh, You know, recently there's even been, in the last number of years here, Uh, a TV show called The Hoarders, uh, where people go in and they try to help someone get rid of all the stuff and organize their homes. But sadly, this is the way many people live. And I've been in homes where there was so much clutter that there was literally no place to sit down, even if I wanted to. I've been in houses where the shower was unable to be used because it was piled up with magazines and newspapers and stuff and just, you know, bathtub as well, you know, so that you can tell how often they bathed. You can imagine how difficult it was, uh, it must have been, to pick up a sick or injured person in a house like that. Couldn't even get the, the uh, stretcher in there. Had to clear a path. You know, but this is how some people live. Accumulating more and more stuff that has very little value. Imagine, you know, if uh, those people, how they would have reacted if I had walked into their home and started throwing stuff in the trash and throwing it out the door. You know, how, how would they, what would they think? Well, probably the same way you would think if I came to your house and I said, well, hey, there's a mess here. Let's get this mess thrown out of here. You'd kind of think, well, what, what are you doing? That's none of your business, is it? After all, it's my house, my stuff. 
And even though it needed to be cleaned up, I didn't have any right to do it because it wasn't mine. But in our text, Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem in John chapter 2 and verses 12 through 17. And he didn't begin by opening the scripture and teaching everyone the proper use of the temple. Most would say he wasn't very polite about it. He didn't ask, now, would you, would you mind if I moved your animals outside? Uh, could you please carry your coin boxes and tables outside the gates? Would you please do that for me? Rather than doing that, he saw what was going on. He made a scourge of cords, and he drove the animals and their owners out of there. He dumped the coins uh, of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, we read, he commanded in verse 16, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. As can be expected, the Jews asked him, in effect, you know, what right do you have to do these things? If we would have heard them, they might have said something like this. Who do you think you are? Do you think you own this place? Well, John wants us to understand this. Yes, Jesus does own this place. The temple belongs to him. And so the Lord of the temple, Jesus, has authority to cleanse it and restore it to its proper use. In our last study, the disciples got an initial glimpse of Jesus' glory when he turned the water into wine and they believed in him. It says in verse 11, it says they believed on Jesus. Now, they had believed on him earlier, but they believed in a a deeper way. It would be after Jesus' resurrection, when the disciples remembered this incident and the result was the same, when, therefore, he was arisen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And John writes these things so we might have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is so that we might believe in him as the Christ, the Son of of God, and through believing we might have life in his name. Now before we look at the main event in our text, notice what verse 12 says. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... It's kind of a transitional, uh, that's, uh, it helps if you get the right chapter. My chapter had a two in it, okay? Does that, that count? No. Uh, chapter two, verse 12, let's look at that. And if I told, that's chapter three. Man, I'm having trouble this morning. It's in here somewhere. Here we go. Try it again. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and his brethren and disciples, and they continued there not many days. Kind of a transitional verse. Capernaum was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, about two miles west of where the Jordan River flowed into the sea. It was the home of Peter and Andrew. After John the Baptist had been imprisoned, Jesus moved there from Nazareth. Now, the last... This is the last time we're going to see uh, that Jesus' mother is mentioned in this gospel until she's at the cross 
in chapter 19 and verse 26. We're going to encounter Jesus' brothers again in chapter 7 and verses 3 through 10, where John informs us that they did not at that point believe in Jesus. Now, some didn't believe that uh, Jesus had any brothers or sisters. I think we can uh, safely say, uh, according to Scripture and what we understand uh, various uh, passages can uh, tell us, that he had at least two sisters and uh, four brothers, I think. So I think there were seven altogether, something like that. All right, so he had brothers and sisters. Now, of course, the Catholics, they won't uh, accept that because they believe that uh, Mary didn't have any more children, that she was perpetually a virgin. They say that these are either Jesus' cousins or else Joseph's children from a previous marriage. No, uh, that's putting something into Scripture that's not there. But there is no biblical reason to deny that there were children born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. Matthew one twenty five states that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, implying that after that time they had normal marital relations. And so he had brothers, he had sisters, and so uh, we're not going to hear too much about them, but we don't hear about the mother until later in, in chapter 19. But regarding the cleansing of the temple, most scholars and even uh, conservative ones argue that there was only one cleansing, but I believe there were two. Uh, two cleansings. The synoptic gospels all report that Jesus cleansed the temple after his triumphal entry on the last week of his ministry. And John alone reports this cleansing at the outset. So I believe there, at the beginning of his ministry, there was this cleansing. And then at the end of his ministry, there was another cleansing. Some say that John puts the event out of chronological order at the beginning for some theological reasons. But the chronological sequence of chapter 2, 11 through 13 is pretty tight. And other than liberal bias, it's most natural to conclude that there were two cleansings. And so all Jewish males were required to go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than the surrounding territory in the temple. And they were, uh, temple was there, and they were required to go there three times a year for the great feast of the Passover, the Pentecost, and tabernacles. And this occasion, Jesus went up for the Passover. Now, within the temple compound, there was a spacious courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. It says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand in verse 13. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. Now, this was in this court of the Gentiles. Gentile proselytes would worship in that area, but they were threatened with death if they went beyond this four and a half foot dividing wall. And Paul refers to that in Ephesians chapter 2. But it was in this area that the merchants and the money changers had set up their operation. And so as Jesus approaches this area, this was the place of worship and prayer. He would have heard the commotion of a marketplace. Merchants crying out to hawk their wares, and then he would have had the smell of animals there. 
And these who came to worship at the temple had come great distances to worship, needed sacrificial animals. They couldn't bring their sheep and the oxen and the doves along with them. Uh, They could have brought them, but that would not have been an easy thing to do. But the animals had to be without blemish and had to pass the final inspection. and uh, That all cost money. So to avoid the hassle of bringing their own animals and the risk of having the animals rejected, a person would simply buy one that had already been certified from a vendor at the temple. And these vendors paid the high priest for the privilege of selling uh, at the temple. And so it was a nice business for the high priest and the vendors. Provided a convenient service for worshipers. And then also there's the aspect of foreign money. Foreign money wouldn't be acceptable in the temple. So to buy their animals and to pay the half-shekel temple tax, uh, worshipers had to get their money changed into a proper coinage, again, for a fee, of course. If you've ever traveled overseas, you know how this works. Every foreign airport and city, money changers will trade American currency for the local currency for a nice fee. But there's some evidence that these merchants and money changers had operated around the Mount of Olives outside the temple precincts uh, precincts under, under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin for some time. But just prior to Jesus' ministry, Caiaphas, the high priest, had brought them into the court of Gentiles. And he was going to compete with those on the outside. And Jesus' indignation was not necessarily against selling animals or changing money per se, although gouging people with exorbitant prices for personal profit was certainly wrong, but rather the audacity of bringing these merchants into the only place where the Gentiles could worship. Their business could have been carried out on outside the temple. So why didn't the temple officials arrest and physically restrain Jesus from carrying out his extreme action? Well, we we read about his extreme action there uh, in verse 14. Found in the temple, those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the changers of money, and overthrew the tables. Why didn't they just arrest him? Well, there are probably several factors. First, there was a general public outrage against this corrupt and evil system. People knew that uh, they were being charged these exorbitant rates, and the Uh, High priests, the vendors, knew that there was only so much that the public could bear. And so if they used force against Jesus, they might have uh, a public rebellion. Also, the consequences of the vendors themselves may have been a little uneasy. They're setting up shop in the temple precincts, uh, defiled the temple because it brought animal uh, uh, excrement into the sacred place. You know, Jesus' actions could have been viewed as a fulfillment of Malachi 3, where it was prophesied that Messiah would come to his temple and purify the people with like a refiner's fire. It was not so much uh, Jesus' physical force that drove these merchants out of the temple, but rather his moral power. And so rather than physically arresting him and restraining him, the authorities challenged his authority and his right to do what he did. And we'll get into our next study 
later on about Jesus' reply and the disciples' response. But notice with me some things here, some lessons that we can learn from Jesus' house cleaning of the temple. Number one, notice the Lord's authority. Several things in the text establish Jesus' lordship and thus his authority over the temple. I want you to see, first of all, in verse 16, he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. You notice there he calls it my father's house. He doesn't say it's our father's house. He said my father's house. Uh, Jesus never joins men with himself in such a way as to indicate that uh, their sonship is similar to his sonship. Jesus' words here, my father's house, claim his deity. Jesus is the unique son of God, the heir of all things. And so he is the rightful Lord of the temple. And then he also cites Psalm 69 in verse 9, in verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written... Where was it written? Psalm 69, 9. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And so it's not just that someone was trying to reform and, and get these Jews straightened out. It's a sign of the arrival of the, of the Messiah. John is showing us that Jesus is the Christ. It's one of John's great themes that Jesus, God, in Jesus, God is working his purposes out. Someone might raise the question, well, why didn't Christ begin by teaching them first before he took such drastic action? Well, Jesus wished in some way to take possession of the temple and to give proof of his divine authority. And also this dramatic action would have awakened everyone to pay attention. I uh, read about a member of the British Parliament was standing in the lobby of the house when a tall, distinguished-looking old gentleman asked for a moment of his time, and he said, I have heard that of you as one who takes up unpopular causes, and I should extremely be grateful if you would listen to my story. It was a sad story, but by hard work and thrift, he had amassed a large fortune, and now his relatives had robbed him of it. Not content with that, they had placed him in a mental home, and that this was his day out. And so he went to this member of parliament to tell his story and, and say, you know, here it is. I've written it out in a document. Study it. Communicate with me at your leisure. Thank you. Thank you for looking at this. Have a good day. Well, the member of parliament was moved by the old man's exquisite courtesy. The member of parliament took the paper. He shook his hands and he promised that he would do everything in his power. And he turned back to go to the session of parliament and as he did to, so, he received a kick in the seat of his pants, nearly sent his spine through his hat, and the old man said, don't forget. <laughs> Maybe this was the Lord's way of saying, don't forget. He was kicking the vendors in the seat of their pants, so to speak. So they wouldn't forget his teaching. Apparently they did if there was a second cleansing, but... You know, it's easy to sit here and even enjoy the story of Jesus cleaning the temple and we could cheer him on and say, go, go, go. But you know, I think it gets a little uncomfortable when we remember what Paul tells us in his letters 
As we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And then he said over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21 and 22, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And then you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 and 20. What know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know, the world says, it's my body. I can do with it what I want. And a lot of people are saying that today, aren't they? I can smoke. I can drink. I can do drugs. I can have abortions. I can do whatever I want. It's my body. But that's the world. That's the unsaved crowd. A Christian, a believer on the other hand, realizes, I'm not my own. This body belongs to God. It's been bought with a price. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so I must honor the Lord with my body. It does not matter what we do with, it does matter what we do with what God has given us. We're to live for him under his authority. Secondly, notice the Lord's examination and judgment. Jesus knew that the temple was not to be a place for business. That's what he's saying here in verse 16. It was a place for worship. It was a place for prayer. It was a place for offering sacrifices. It was a place to meet with God and to seek his face. Isaiah 56 and verse 7 says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. It was the place to gather for these three annual feasts according to Deuteronomy chapter 16. And the Passover which Jesus here went up to celebrate was a time to remember God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But it had been had degenerated into a business opportunity for a high priest and all the merchants and the money changers. And no doubt they realized their activities. It was useful service for the worship, of course. But they were uh, uh, prostituting God's purpose for the temple. And God's purpose for his children is that we glorify him by growing in fervent love for him and for one another. You know, those are the two great commandments. Love God and love one another. And by proclaiming the gospel to the lost, we need to keep on the task of evaluating all that we do in light of these purposes. Think about the things that you do. Think about the, uh, the life that you live. Is it in line with loving God, loving other believers, and giving the gospel to those who do not know Christ? Individually, each one of us should seek the glory uh, to glorify God by everything we do. If we live for anything else, the Lord of the temple will examine us. He will purge us. 
And he'll take and deal with us and chastise us. And so we have the Lord's examination and judgment. Thirdly, we have the Lord's hatred. Jesus is zealous for God's house. And that zeal means uh, zeal itself. The word zeal, emulation, fervent mind, indignation, jealousy. Uh, he, I don't think he was thought by most people to be very polite about this. The Bible doesn't tell us that he said please. It suggests uh, that he was very emphatic about his, his desire. He made a whip. He drove them out with force. He angrily upended, upended their uh, money tables and scattered their coins. Now, does that fit the, your picture of Jesus? Is Jesus a loving and kind God? Yes. But Jesus, the Son of God, is also a holy God. Matthew eleven twenty nine says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Matthew twelve twenty, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. John 1, 16, And his fullness have, we all, have all we received, and grace for grace. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Luke 3 and verse 17, Whose fan is in His hand, He will thoroughly purge His floor and will gather the wheat into His garner, but the chaff He will burn with fire unquenchable. Matthew 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 1 Corinthians 3.17 If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Yes, Jesus is gentle toward sinners. Jesus has given grace upon grace. He loves us that he, so much he gave himself for us on the cross. But he baptizes with fire. It is a fearful, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus hates sin because sin destroys people, the people he loves. And sin among God's people drags God's holy name through the mud. This means that first we should hate our own sin and be quick to repent of it so he doesn't have to clean house for us. Judge and confess and forsake your sin on the thought level, uh, uh, on the thought level, and it won't go any farther. And if you've already sinned in word or deed, turn from it. Ask God to forgive you. Ask for forgiveness of those that you've sinned against. And if you know a brother or sister who is in sin, zeal for God's house should override your fear of man and your aversion to confront someone. When you've prayed and in humility you go to that brother or that sister and you seek to restore them to the Lord, it is the Christ-like thing to do. That's the picture of Jesus. Jesus never avoided confrontation if it was necessary to do the will of God. And we dare not dodge our responsibility either. It's a necessary part of Bible or biblical love to hate sin. Then fourthly, we see the Lord's cleansing. Now there's a 
very sober, serious question that we could ask this morning. What would Jesus do if he walked in those doors back there, physically, walked in those doors and visited our church? Would he be pleased with our worship? Would he smile as he looked at our relationships? Would he approve of our heart for the lost? Would he commend our giving and the way that we use the church's funds? Would he say that our prayer life reflects our total dependence upon him? And ask the same question even as an individual. If Jesus would come into your home and confront you personally, physically, right there. Lord, is my life pleasing to you? Is my love for you genuine? Do I reflect the fruit of the Spirit? Is my thought life pure in your sight? I wonder where would he clean life and uh, clean house in your life? Knows here that Jesus didn't work out a compromise with these owners and these uh, animal owners and this money changers. He didn't say, you know, now if you tithe your profits and I'll keep you, you can keep on doing business here. No, he cleaned out the entire operation, and he doesn't let us keep a little bit of sin if we just give up a few other sins. Jesus wants to clean it all out. And yes, it may be painful. It may be costly. You know, I'm sure the whip stung. If anyone had gotten in the way of that whip, I'm sure it, 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 it hurt. And I'm sure the money changers probably lost a few coins. And their future business suffered. And it may cost you in many ways to do business with Jesus. But the long-term benefits are worth it. And so, the last thing we want to notice here is the cost of cleansing. Hebrews 12, verse 6, and then verse 11 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. And so we should not regard his discipline lightly or faint when we are reproved by him. But rather we need to be subject to the Father of spirits and live. Once Jesus has cleaned our house, we need to keep it clean. So it doesn't have, we don't have to do it again. Not long after this first cleansing, they set up shop again so that Jesus had to do it a second time three years later. But his zeal for God's house did consume him. In fact, it led to his death. It's good every so often to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates. And so ask yourself your, some questions. Have I lost the first love for Christ? Do I spend time with him often in his word? Do I spend time with him often in prayer? Or am I 
actively seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I seek to please Him with my thoughts and my words and my deeds? How about my relationships with others, especially those I live with? Are you fervent in your love for others? Do you deny yourself and seek to build others in love? Do you love gathering with other believers in church? Do you spend time in light of his kingdom purposes? Are you a conscientious steward of the resources that he has entrusted to you? Do you view yourself as the Lord's servant, seeking opportunities to be used by him? Or are there any hidden or even open sins you need to confess and forsake? Paul says, if we clean house ourselves, the Lord won't need to do it for us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. This afternoon we'll be observing the Lord's table. And I trust that we'll come to this table of remembrance, a memorial with clean hearts. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32. For if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. I wonder this morning, do you need to clean house? Don't put it off. The Lord doesn't want you to live in a spiritual pigsty. Let's... Make sure our hearts and our our lives are clean before the Lord. Let's pray.